Um, I, might, I might be wrong, but my experience with Marco Polo is that you usually play it in the pool or in the water somewhere where someone's covering their eyes and you try to find somebody. And it was in a pool in Budapest this last week where a dramatic rescue took place. U.S. swimmer Anita Alvarez had just finished a stunning and really difficult solo swim which mixed art and athleticism. You've probably seen synchronized swimmers that do this together. Well, this was just a kind of a solo version. It's kind of like a ballet routine just in the water, very demanding, very physically intense. As she finished her minutes-long swim, people noticed that Anita was not coming up from the water but was sinking down instead. She was sinking because the strain of the routine and those long periods of holding her breath caused her to pass out. So passing out and water don't mix well. The very first to notice was perhaps the person that knew Anita the best in the whole place, and it was her coach, Andrea Fuentes. Dressed for spectating, not for swimming, Andrea immediately dove into the water to rescue Anita to bring her to the surface and then to help resuscitate her. Now, Anita was shaken by the experience, and otherwise she made a recovery, but too much longer spent unconscious in the bottom of a pool would have been disastrous. And it was all thanks to her coach and friend's awareness in responding to her helplessness that saved her life. What this coach did is a picture of how God reacts to his children as they cry out to him. When we find ourselves helpless or in danger or in distress or distraught, he comes and answers us personally. He's not somewhere like way up in the stands. He's having a hard time just getting to us or he's held up somehow or he's too far away to notice that anything happened or that anything was wrong. But if that's true, why is it that it often seems like we're alone in that pool? Why do we feel like when we cry out to God and it echoes around, but nothing seems to happen? If God is quick to hear us, that's one. Of, we've even recalled it this morning. It's one of the promises that we rely on to reassure us that God hears me. But if he's so quick to hear us, and is, in, is somehow guaranteed to respond in a rescuing manner, why is it that he refuses to answer this thing that I've been pleading for him to change? I'm not convinced at all that God does this because that's not been my experience. The title of the sermon is simply, The Lord Answers, partially because you and I need the help of the Spirit and even just a bit of proof from the Word to help show us that this is actually true and that we can depend on God's dependability. We can depend on him answering us. And today we're, we're going to spend time on the first and the last verses of Psalm 4 because a good chunk of this psalm, the, the, the message of it is going to be repeated next week in Psalm 5. But in Psalm 3, 4, 5, 6, it seems that the Holy Spirit through David wants to communicate something that David himself has been so reassured of and that he knows to be true. And I want us to see it as well with the hopes that, that we'd start adding, we're going through the Psalms this summer with, with the hope that we start adding these 
songs of Israel to our songbook, both personally and as a church. I want, I want to know what Psalm 4 is about so that I can use it, so that I can make it my cry and my prayer and our prayer as a church, and that they would begin to form new personal and family playlists, so to speak. So 3, 4, 5, and 6 have a common theme, not, not necessarily an overarching theme, but at least a piece. And l- listen to these snippets from, from these four chapters. Psalm 3, I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. Psalm 4, answer me when I call, be gracious to me, and hear my prayer. Psalm 5, give ear to my words, O Lord, give attention to the sound of my cry. O Lord, in the morning hear my voice. Psalm 6, depart from me, all you workers of evil. I don't, you have no business here. Why? For the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. And it's not just this cluster of a few psalms. It's, it's in others. Psalm 18. In my distress, I called upon the Lord to God. To my God, I cried for help. From his temple, he heard my voice. And my cry to him reached his ears. Psalm 56. You have kept count of my tossings. You put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? My enemies will turn back in the day when I call, because this I know, that God is for me. A personal favorite for me, Psalm 116, I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. Because he's inclined his ear to me, I will call on him as long as I live. Now David wanted all of Israel to know that God is worth calling upon, not just, not just because he's open ears, but because he's the almighty king who answers the cries of his people. Even just one instance of this was in Exodus 6 when, when Israel had been in slavery for so long and God is saying, I've, I've heard them. I've, that's why I'm coming to them and I'm going to deliver them. I've heard their groaning and what they're going through. But David wanted to lead this nation of Israel in singing about that, that the creator of all things The Lord of glory is far from death. But before leading the nation of Israel in that way, he was doing it himself as he wrote this psalm. Answer me when I call, verse 1. O God of my righteousness, you've given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. You can hear the desperation in his voice. But he doesn't really know, he doesn't let us know exactly what he's walking through. you remember from last week, Absalom, his son, is, is pursuing him. He's trying to kill him. We don't know whether this psalm was related to that situation or not. He doesn't tell us. However, we know for sure that David is in distress. Is, is Absalom still out to get him? Maybe. Is, is it something else? All we know is that he's troubled perhaps by wicked men and he's desperate. Lord, I'm here. All I know is to call out to you. I'm making my trouble known to you, like we talked about a few weeks ago. So would you please, please answer me. That's, that's all I want. Would you listen? Because I'm at my wit's end, and what, what I need is, is a response. In David's case, he needs his Lord and his God to judge between his righteous actions and his foe's wicked mistreatment. So he says, Oh God of my righteousness, 
Now, I don't know about you, but that's not like a common term or name that I use in my prayers to the Lord. Oh, God of my righteousness. But what David is saying is God is the source of his righteousness and the one who will ultimately clear David's name in the midst of being accused and harassed by wicked people. In other words, God, to those who obey him and are, are who are led into that obedience by God, they are also cleared by God. He's not confused about who is right and who is wrong in a given situation. If we're, if we're following him, if we're being faithful to him, and still yet being accused and threatened and berated or mistreated, God is not unsure of who is in the right and who is in the wrong. So that's what David's calling for. He's calling, clear, clear my name, or, or God of my righteousness, see this for what it is. Now, David is writing before Paul, so he's not getting the idea of, of Jesus giving us his righteousness from Paul or anything, but it is true the other way around, that Paul, his ideas and inspiration are firmly rooted in places like Psalms or Jeremiah. Jeremiah prophesies this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, this is Jesus, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. And this is a future day for Jeremiah. And we assume this is a present day for us. Jeremiah is talking about something that will be true for Judah and Israel and the people of God one day. And this is the name that we, in which we will call Jesus. The Lord is our righteousness. The Lord is our source of salvation and rightness before him. And we as his people get to claim him as ours. He's our righteousness. Here's what Paul does say in agreement with David and Jeremiah is this. And because of him, that's God, because of God, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us what? Wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. I mean, that's, that's what David is doing. David's not saying necessarily, Lord, um, I've done a good job here. Can you honor that? He's saying, no, you, O oh God of my righteousness, the one who sees justice clearly who sees wrong clearly the one who has worked right any righteousness in me help me the lord didn't just give us as his church or personally as christians this item of righteousness that's how i've seen it in the past a robe of righteousness yes but andrew murray in his abide in christ devotional says something to the effect of we boast in the Lord, not, not because he gave us this thing called righteousness, but who has himself become to us righteousness. Jesus has become righteousness to us, which means he is the one who stands on our side in the midst of false accusation and who will one day clear our name of anything falsely spoken of us. Again, Paul was not confused about or God was not confused about who is in the right and who is in the wrong. That's why David's knowing, I know he's a reliable place to go. In my moment of distress, I know that God 
sees this very clearly. Um, put this to the test. I encourage you guys to put this concept of God being the God of your righteousness to the test next time you find yourself being silently accused by the evil one or falsely accused by others and different thoughts are popping into your head like God does not see you. You're a fraud anyway. Your faith is unconvincing. You lack a true faith like so-and-so. God's not going to love you because you can't even do such and such right. Oh, God of my righteousness, vindicate me. Divide between the falsehood and the truth and deliver me. You know the truth. I don't, I don't have to sit here and defend myself before this person or before you. You know the tr- truth. You know who I belong to. Come and save me. And that's the sort of cry David is making and opening the door for us to make as well here. He's crying out to God. And wouldn't you agree that, that being heard and understood is a massive help in walking through painful things? Would you agree with that? I read a book a few months back by Nancy Guthrie on, on what not to say to those who are grieving and how to, to care for them tenderly and genuinely. One of the themes that kept popping up was that we hate when someone tries to chase away our grief or smother it with some trivial, seemingly courteous answer. Everything's going to be okay. Or even poorly timed truths like, this is working for your good. But isn't it significant when someone sits and listens and clarifies and works hard to understand what you're experiencing and the intensity of it? Whether it's grief or confusion about a decision that you're trying to make, a person in your life who won't seem to change, a distressing new development or a long-standing difficulty that won't go away, a desire that lies unfulfilled, it's in those moments where we long to be heard. And when we're finally heard, what happens? The burden is lifted because we're confident that that person on the other end has heard all of what we've said and dealt appropriately with all of it. That's where we find a lot of comfort. And David is showing us that no one understands you better or hears you more clearly than God himself. He's not hard of hearing. He's not tuned out. He's not plagued by misunderstanding, and he doesn't even need a thorough, well-thought-out explanation. He hears, but he does more than that. Psalm 4 is a song that was often sung in the evening, and Psalm 5 is a song that was often sung in the morning. So morning and evening, pour out your troubles like we've talked about. Cry out to God. Don't go, don't go elsewhere. Cry out to your Redeemer and know this. He will answer you. He will answer you. Do you believe that? Do you cry out believing that you'll be received on the other hand. Do you, do you cry out believing that he will answer you? Now here's what I'm not saying when I'm talking about God answering you. The end of this psalm is just like Psalm 3, just like the previous psalm, where it doesn't end with God answering David by changing his circumstances. Sometimes God does, he did deliver David out of the hand of the people trying to kill him, But David doesn't seem to have this expectation that God will answer him, meaning that he will provide an immediate change to the circumstances. 
and neither should we. We do ask and we're free to ask to ex- expectantly for God to change what's happening around us. Relief from the financial pinch, healing, sickness, the benefit of sleep, even a change in weather to relieve allergies or a way out of a difficult situation. He wants us to depend on him and to be merciful to us in those moments and to cry out for help, whether it's help enduring a headache or help when you're absolutely desperate. Sometimes he answers by giving us the specific thing that we're asking for. But what if what we're asking for is not a part of God's perfect, just, and gracious will? I think one of our goals this morning is this, to ask the Spirit to help us believe that God actually and personally will answer our cries even if it does not mean the immediate disappearance of whatever we're suffering. If we've shrunk God answering prayers to immediate, unquestionable relief from difficulty, it's no wonder that God answering me when I cry to him has question marks just written all over it. How am I supposed to trust that he answers me if these changes aren't happening? Will he answer me this time? He didn't last time because I asked for healing, and healing didn't come. I asked for change, and that change didn't come. This despair we feel feels like picking up the phone, dialing the number, and listening to that really cold, line-busy tone beeping over and over again. Is God preoccupied? Should I just ask someone or something else to fix my problems? I feel like this neglected middle sibling over here compared to my brothers and sisters in Christ whom the Lord has clearly answered when they've prayed for this or that. Could it be that we reduce God answering our cries to things happening rather than God answering our cries looking like a person, the God of all comfort, the Prince of Peace coming to us, comforting us, sometimes changing the situation powerfully and graciously but often simply answering our desperation and the state of our hearts without a single piece of the puzzle of our lives changing necessarily. Here's why I think this is a big deal. If I'm always counting on something to change and God in his infinite wisdom chooses not to change that thing, the assumption I'm left with is you don't care, you don't know what you're doing, and you've unfairly rejected my request. Rather than you are doing this to further your glory, to make me more like you, and for a million other very wise reasons that I can't even conjure up. So, all-knowing God, I trust your will. That's what Jesus was doing in Gethsemane. He asked for something specific. He said, Lord, if this cup should pass from me, he was making a request, but if not, your will be done. So he was surrendering himself to the all-knowing, perfect will of God, Crying out to him, God, it seems, answered his cry and strengthened Jesus to go do the impossible. So God, I trust your will. Your infinite power, I trust it. Your mercy towards me, I trust you. I hate that in moments it doesn't mean specific answers to my request, but right now I trust you. One example that we can draw from also is Paul. Three times Paul asked for the thorn in his flesh to be removed. Whatever ailment or whatever was plaguing him, that God clearly answered him on several particular occasions. It was not the thing that he was requesting. 
But there was a point where I think Paul was satisfied with God's answer to him. If the only type of answer that Paul was willing to accept was the removal of this thorn, he would have wound up very disappointed. But it seems that Paul doesn't limit limit God answering his cry to just one possibility or even one single moment. Psalm 40 verse 1 tells us that God's answer and his comfort aren't always immediate. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and he heard my cry. The point this morning is not to cast doubt on whether or not God can miraculously bring relief or healing or change minor or drastic things going on in your life or to answer you swiftly as you're crying out to him. He has all authority and power to be able to do both of those things. And we want to expect much of him because he can do more than we ask or imagine. The point this morning, however, is to ask ourselves whether we believe an immediate relief or an immediate change of our circumstance, are those the only two options for God to be able to answer us? So before you write off God as cold to you, ignoring you, consider what the Spirit through David is exemplifying in this psalm. And I pray that it keeps us in this place of difficult expectance rather than us giving up on continuing to go to him. Because I think David has tapped into something incredible, and it's not totally different from what Paul described in Philippians that we've just gone through as deep, untouchable joy founded in Christ. By the end of this psalm, David lies down in peace with no indication as to whether things have changed around him or not. The one thing that did happen is that he cried. He cried out to God, and God answered him with deep peace, deep assurance that David belonged to God, who is Lord over all things and people. Now this begs the question, are there specific situations in Scripture where God does close his ear and does not listen, much less answer our prayers. The first that comes to mind that many of you are familiar with is 1 Peter 3, 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Obviously, God, God cares very deeply about the relationship between a husband and a wife and whether or not that is an understanding relationship because it's a pretty high penalty that if, if you men are living in this way, your prayers are going to be hindered. God is not going to be as open access to your cries and your prayers if he knows you're not living with your wives in an understanding way, humbly seeking to know them, to know their concerns, to listen, to lead, can hinder your prayers. Another, another way that our prayers might be hindered or not listened to, Psalm 66 and Proverbs 28 say something similar. If I, have ch- if I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Or Proverbs 28. If one turns away his ear from the law, even his prayer is an abomination. This is also like Isaiah 1. All of these have to do with what's going on in our hearts. Isaiah 1 is, is this description of Israel that is their weights, it seems like they're too far gone. They, they have, it says from, they are so wicked that it's like a body full of sores from the top of your head to the soles of your feet. There's not an inch on Israel that is not tainted and sinful and hates God 
forgets him, that has nothing to do with him. And 115 says, when you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. So God does not listen to or answer the prayers of those who care nothing for his law and who disregard others and who do not turn to him in their sin. Now you may be in a position where you feel completely ignored and are without peace about God being near. So it's worth asking the question, am I harboring any sin that I refuse to turn from? Is there something hindering my prayers? And that's not to create this, I gotta, I gotta find what it is. Come to the Lord, say, Search me, O God. Know my heart. See if there be any wicked way in me. Reveal that to me so that I can cast that on you. If there's something that I am aware I have been keeping this from you, show it to me. Humble me so that I can bring that to you so that this communication between you is free. And did you notice what doesn't make the list of things that God doesn't hear? People who are broken over their sin. God says, a broken and contrite heart I will not despise. What is also not on that list is crying out to him for the millionth time. God's not annoyed by your persistence or your desperation. So there are things that can hinder, and yet the very few things by the grace of God. I mentioned earlier that we won't spend much time on the middle of the psalm because we'll visit some of it later. Um, the gist of the middle of the psalm is David knows whose side God is on. And David is confident that as the anointed king and as part of God's chosen people that God is on his side and that God is not, um, he's not unaware of the wicked who are opposing him. He knows who the winner in this situation is, and it's the one who trusts in the Lord. That's how he comes out on the other side of this psalm, verses 7 and 8. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Lord, they might be ruining my life and still getting off scot-free. They might be fat and happy right now. They stabbed me in the back with no repercussions, and here I am suffering. But you know what you, the God of my righteousness, the Lord of hosts, you know what you are to me, and you have put joy in my heart, than they, than more so than when people are pursuing their self-satisfying wickedness. I don't need for my life to look like nonstop pleasure to be filled with and to experience joy. So I'll lie down tonight in the midst of the chaos and I'll sleep. That might be a literal sleep or it might just be this settled peace rooted in God's protection and control over all that is happening. That's the result of David's cry. That's God's answer to him in this particular case. Now you notice David's not quoting a verbal answer from the Lord. He's not referencing something that has changed, but you know that David has experienced something, some change in his own heart that equates to God has answered me. I called out to him, he answered me because I wasn't at peace, and now I am. Now I know a deep, settled assurance that I belong to God, that he is with me. So this is the, the main point and the purpose of this psalm, I think, for us. 
in these few kind of cluster of psalms, you have this promise wherever you go that God hears and he answers the cries of his people. You have this promise wherever you find yourself, wherever you go, God hears and he answers the cries of his people. Now, just briefly, three things from, directly from Jesus that assure us of this. Now, I want us to take that. He hears me. He answers me. Minus all the caveats of like, well, maybe he won't answer me right this moment. Maybe he won't answer me in this specific way. Go, go forward knowing he hears. He will answer me. And here are some ways that I can have confidence about that. How can we root our assurance that God hears and answers in what we know of Jesus? How does Jesus provide the basis for trusting that? Just three things. First, Jesus answered a cry that we never made. While I was cutting grass this week and thinking about some of what we're talking about today, I was struck right between the eyes almost in the middle of June by a baby in a manger. Because when I thought about how I could know whether or not God answers me when I call him, I imagine the transition of the Son of God in full splendor taking on the form of a baby boy. This Lord of Lords descending to earth, becoming one of us, he was literally a helpless child, just like you and I once were. And he did that in order to save us at a time when we weren't crying out to him. The world hated him, and his own people did not receive him. He was responding to the cry, Lord, come save us. But we weren't even making that cry because we still hated God. So if he came into the world then, if he stooped so, so low to bring us a solution that we so desperately needed and weren't looking for, like a coach diving into the pool after a completely unconscious swimmer, performing a rescue that we couldn't live without. And if he saved you and I after living every day of our lives up to that point in rebellion against God, then what sort of venomous lie is it that says he won't come to us now? That he won't personally answer us now? Who am I to assume that he has changed? Has God changed? Has he come to save sinners but will have nothing to do with the grimaces and the winces of his children? Friends, that's not the covenant-keeping God of the Bible. He will answer you when you call to him. Second assurance, Jesus is continually praying for us. It's impossible for the one who ever lives to make intercession for us to lose track of us, to not have our good in mind. It is impossible for him to forget those whom he holds most dear. So as we're praying and crying out to him, he's interceding. He's not letting things fall flat. The one who is dedicated to ceaselessly praying for you, your representative in heaven, the one in whom your life is hidden, will answer you. If he's not changing your situation at the moment, don't give yourself permission to, to, to write him off. Give yourself permission to go ahead and trust that he's got very, very wise and good reasons for that. Perhaps he'll even meet you and comfort you just in knowing that he will answer me. He will answer me in some form. 
But know that he's not ignoring you. He will answer you when you call to him. The last one, I might have it written differently, but Jesus will decisively answer every cry you've made by finally delivering you from the curse of sin and the verdict of death. And what I'm thinking of there is Jesus has made this promise that he will bring us to where he is, that he will judge the living and the dead, he will make all things right, every unjust thing, every cry that I've said, Lord, help me, Lord, resolve this, what we're saying is save us fully and finally, he will answer that call and answer every other cry that, that is derived from that request, save us. He'll do that once and for all. There won't be a moment in heaven where we're crying out in desperation. He will answer you. Now just one brief application just to consider What would it mean to you that God would answer that one cry you've cried a dozen times? Or how would it change future desperate cries if you had the confidence that God in some way would answer you? How would that change how you go on praying or pray in desperation in the future? What does it mean to you that I can can have this confidence that, that crying out to him is not useless? It's not worthless. He will answer me. Think about that. Consider that. Talk about that together. Because you walk around with the promise that when you cry to him, he will answer you.